29, is doing a special church planting Sunday in May. And Acts 29 churches across the world are in May, kind of using one Sunday in May as a way to focus in on this important concept of church planting. I don't know if you know this, uh, but our kind of design for Urban Grace is never just to plant one church. We want to plant a lot of churches. If you're brand new, this vision is quite large. 20 churches in 10 years. I know it sounds impossible. It is. That's why we need you. Uh, because you're the ones that are going to be planting these churches, just so you know. So tick the box if you want to plant a church at the end of the service. I'm kidding. No. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that later. But we're going to focus in uh, on May 26th on church planting. Matt Chandler is going to be here. Maybe not in person, but we'll, we'll get the next best thing. And he's going to talk about church planting. And then we're going to take a special offering for that. If you're not aware, we also take 10% of our budget. So we expect that you take some of your budget and help with this church's ministry. And with that money, we actually take 10% of it and we scrape it off and we tie that to new churches so that we can do this church plan. At this point, we've got roughly, what, $10,000 set aside and we're ready to give that away uh, to church planting. We're looking at a place in Quebec. We're going to announce it officially. We're looking at it at this point. We're praying about it. That seems to be the best place. I don't know if you've heard. Quebec is fairly under gospel, fairly under churched. We think it's a good place. We know some Acts 29 church planters there who are doing uh, a bang-up job, and we'd love to see many more churches planted there. They have a large vision as well, and we'd like to be supporting that. Um, and we also want to be involved in church planting here, of course, but they're a little bit, well, quite a bit further ahead than we are. So just be prepared for that and ask Jesus to just w- who, what he puts on your heart. Uh, that offering will be above and beyond what we kind of expect is the normal offering. But it's it, it's something that we really want to always participate in at, at uh, Urban Grace. That this is kind of pretty consistent. We're just part of planting churches everywhere because really, at the end of the day, what we really want to see is the gospel go forward in our world and in our city and in everywhere that's possible. We're not worried about whether these are Urban Grace churches. Uh, We're just worried about Jesus being glorified and getting his name out into the world. Yeah. I heard one amen. That's awesome. We're almost 1% Pentecostal. Anyways. Uh, second thing is, it's, it's a, this is a tough one. It's a big day and it's not a big day for some today. Um, I don't know if you, uh, you'll pick up on this. I'm not going to preach a Mother's Day sermon, A, because Nehemiah 12 does not lend itself to Mother's Day sermons. Um, it's the yellow pages from the Jerusalem phone book, um, which doesn't bode well with Mother's Day themes. Uh, but the other reason is that today is actually, uh, it can be a very painful day and a very um, frustrating day for many moms. Um, It's a great day for those who experience motherhood and love being a mom. Um, But with this, we've noticed, even as our culture continues to celebrate Mother's Day, that there's actually a lot of pain involved. Um, And and the reason why, let me just say this, there are a lot of moms who, uh, and percentage-wise, there's probably some here who have experienced abortions in life, and they feel terribly guilty. And every Mother's Day, They just go through this racking guilt and pain of a lost child that they chose not to bring into this world. And so it's a very painful day for some. Some are facing infertility. They're trying to have babies and they can't. And it's a frustrating day to see how someone who's not even trying to have a baby gets to have a baby. So it's painful for those people. 
painful for moms who are just hanging on for dear life. <laughs> They're like, Mother's Day, finally, the one day I can ask somebody, to, at least my husband, to help me out and, and uh, figure things out. And so there's, what we want to do is we want to just uh, kind of bring to your attention that all of these things are going on on Mother's Day. Um, but we're all connected to mothers because I don't know if you know this, but every one of you has a mother. Even if you don't know who she is, you have a mother somewhere. And so we're all connected to this. This is all of our story. And so what I want to do is I just want to pray for uh, women today, some who are facing pain, some who are experiencing joy, and uh, just, just want to be thankful to Jesus that he designed and created motherhood. Uh, this is not our design. And no matter how much you think it's up to you, it's actually not up to you. It's up to Jesus. Um, and again, we want to just recognize all of what's going on today and uh, thank Jesus for the way he made moms. So let's pray together. Jesus, again, we thank you for... We first of all thank you that, that you brought mothers into this world. And actually, you decided to come through a mother, through a virgin birth. You didn't have to do that. But in that way, I believe you really identified with us. And you experienced what it was like to have a mom. What it was like to obey a mom. And in a lot of ways, what it was like to obey a mom that knew less about God than you did. And so you know what many of us experience being the result of, of moms. You know what this is like. Jesus, you also know what it's like to experience this day. I don't. I'm not a mom. I'm a dad. And so I have a different perspective, Jesus. But you know, through your Holy Spirit, what's going on in the hearts and lives of those who are here this morning. You know those who are in pain this morning, who feel guilty over things like abortions, and I pray, Jesus, that for those people that are here that have experienced this in their past, that you would remind them that you are a forgiving God. That you're not placing guilt on them. That you're not forcing that and saying you destroyed everything. In fact, you're saying, come to me. You will only find freedom and forgiveness through me. So remind those who are struggling through that and feeling the pain and the weight and the guilt of that this morning. Jesus, would you be in, with and comfort those who are struggling through this whole issue of infertility, of wanting children, not being quite there yet, or, or not being a mom yet, not being married yet, and not able to start being a mom. I pray for those who are in that category this morning, Jesus, that you would, you would help them to trust you, help them to believe you, help them to be patient as they, as they wait for your word on this. And I pray, Jesus, it looks like you're already doing this, but I pray that this would be a place where you bless moms. That Urban Grace would be known as a church that's filled with all these moms who are thankful and grateful to Jesus that they are moms and not frustrated and not guilty and not annoyed. But Jesus, that, that this is a place where being a mom is lifted high. Thank you for all the hard work. All the grace that you poured into the moms so that people could be here. We're all connected to this story, Jesus. So thank you that you did this. I mean, even my little Dinah 
said to me today, reminded me, Jesus, it's, it's amazing how hard work being a mom is. And so, Jesus, would you again just encourage moms today through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the blessing of children today. And we ask that you would help those who are here this morning who have children and love being with their children, that today can be a special celebration of that. And that they can enjoy just the, the fruit of, of, of family today. I pray for that, Jesus, in your name. And now, Jesus, as we head into this text, I pray that you can somehow make sense of this for all of us, because this is a difficult text. And I pray that it will be helpful to those who are here this morning. Jesus, open up our hearts that we can believe what we hear and open up uh, the, uh, the, the places in our hearts that are not yet believing in you. Help us to hear about you today, Jesus. I pray that I would be clear with everything that I say and I would not say anything I'm not supposed to say, Jesus. We ask for this in your awesome and holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's turn to the book of Nehemiah, and if you don't have a Bible here this morning and you're a guest with us, would you just kindly raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible if you'd like. If that is your first Bible that you've experienced having, we'd like you to keep that Bible uh, because we want you to have the Scripture in your hands at all times. Um, if you have a Bible but, but just didn't bring one today, maybe return it, but other than that, uh, Welcome to keep the Bible you have. I'm not sure what page it's on. Nehemiah chapter 12. Anyone want to shout out what page it's on in those Bibles? Anyone? No one? Okay. Um, Nehemiah chapter 12 then, if you can find it. <laughs> and uh, this, I think, is the fourth time that I've had to read a list of names. So please bear with me. I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 to 26. And here's what it says. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, Seraiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehu, Merimoth, Edo, Ginnathoi, Abijai, Majamin, or Majamin if you're Rastafarian, Madiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Binuai, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mat- Mataniah, who with his brothers were in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And back, back Bukkai, and you and I, you and I, that's cool, And their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Jehoiada, Jehoiada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jedua. And in the days of Joachim were the priests, heads of the father's houses of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, and of Amariah, Jehonanan, of Malukai, Jonathan of Shebaniah, Joseph of Reem, Adna of Marinoth, Helkai of Ido, Zechariah of Ginnathon, Meshulam of Abijah, Zikri of Miniamin, 
of Modai Piltai, of Bilgah Shamua, of Shemua Jehonathan, of Joarib Matani. This is the worst names that I've read so far. Of Jedi Uzai, of Salai Kalai, Salai Kalai of Amok, Eber of Hilkali, Hashbiah of Jediah Nathanel. In the days of Eliashib, Jodai, Johanan, and Jaduai, the Levites, were recorded as heads of the fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabai, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Kadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmud, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. This is actually the Word of God. Pretty self-explanatory, hey? You can see how I can make some easy connections to Mother's Day? Yeah, not really. I honestly looked at this text and, and kind of went like this. Not another list. Yet another list. I think I am thankful today for the Scripture that said, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching because there's absolutely no way I'd ever preach this otherwise. And I'm still a little bit nervous about how this is going to go down because literally there's, there's... It was almost frustrating looking at the scholarship of this because when I looked at the scholarship, no scholar seemed to want to touch it. Many of them spent a lot of time discussing like, well, you know, this was pulling these names from here and... In some ways, it was actually, that, that sounds like a joke to you, uh, that this was from the yellow pages in the Jerusalem phone book, but it really was. And what this text really begins to talk about is this list of these priests who have repopulated the city. Okay, I'm going to stop there and just kind of introduce you to our, uh, our series if you're new and just kind of help you bring, up, bring you up to speed with where we are in the series. This whole series is about the book of Nehemiah and the book of Nehemiah is, uh, is about the rebuilding of the wall, but it's more than that. The rebuilding of the wall is really the setting for which uh, the book of Nehemiah is, is set, but it's not really about that. It's really about the rebuilding of God's people to be on mission for Him and glorify Him through His rebuilt city. For 140 years, uh, the city of Jerusalem had been completely run down. The Babylonians had come in uh, at God's discretion. God said He was in charge of it. And they had come in and they had destroyed Babylon, taken everything good out of the city, and literally left it a lot like many inner cities today. Not Calgary. Calgary's inner city is not like that. There's no poor places really in Calgary. There's poor people in, in inner city Calgary, but there's not really very many poor places because it's a rich, wealthy town. So we can't conceptually figure this out. But in the city of Jerusalem, this city had lied in ruins for 141 years. And then the story of Nehemiah begins with Nehemiah hearing this very old news in a very new way. 
and he hears that, that the, the city of Jerusalem is broken down and that someone or something needs to happen in order for this city to be rebuilt and once again be the pinnacle of where God's presence is in the world. Because Jerusalem, for so many people, especially Israel, represented the actual physical presence of God on this earth. So it's like, if you want to see what God was like, you went to Jerusalem. Did you know this still happens today? People still travel. That's why we say travel to the Holy Land to, to see where this presence of God really is. Even those who don't believe in any sort of religious, don't have any religious background will still say that Jerusalem, regardless of the fact that there's a lot of different religions there now, will literally say this is a city that's full of religion. It still has that reputation. And that's the kind of reputation that it had in the Old Testament. But it drove Nehemiah nuts. It, it broke his heart that his hometown city, where his family line had grown up, where the presence of God had been tangible and real, had not had the tangible presence of God for 140 years. So he asked his boss if he could have a long hiatus from his job, which was a very bold move. And he says, I'm moving back to Jerusalem and I'm going to start rebuilding the city. And in 52 days, somehow, he, we know it's not he because there's no way you can do that in 52 days. I don't think you can get a rental agreement in this city in 52 days. There's no way you can do that if God's not behind it. And God's Holy Spirit comes upon the people and recharges them and they begin to join this great rebuilding mission of the wall. But in chapter 7, the wall is rebuilt. It's been 52 days. But Nehemiah, in the back of his mind, I really believe he knew full well that this was not simply about rebuilding the wall. That it was about rebuilding God's people to become glorifiers of God. And then in, in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, we see what, what, that Nehemiah begins to bring the people back to the Word. And the people want the Word and they hear the Word and they confess their sin and they repent of their sin. And they covenant with God again and say, God, we're not going to do this again. God's like, yes, you will, but I'll accept your covenant. <laughs> because I don't break covenants and I want you to covenant with me. And so the, the preachers of the word, they preach the word. And then Nehemiah says, well, we've rebuilt the wall of the city. The temple by this time has already been rebuilt. This is like the concentrate of God's presence. So the city of Jerusalem is like, you know, I guess it would be like the Gatorade. And, and the temple would be like the Gatorade crystals. Okay? It's the concentrated form of God's presence. And he says, okay, this, the temple's in the city, uh, the walls are rebuilt, there's a city to defend, but there's no people in it. And so in chapter 11, actually, Nehemiah calls the people back into, he says, one out of ten, we've got to repopulate the city with people that love God and reflect God. And now when he calls the people to repopulate one in ten, there's actually already a few people living there, mainly the leadership. And of the leadership, there's priests. That's a huge portion of the people that already live in the city. And that's our text. So that gives you a little bit of background and setting for kind of why this list of priests. Now, now this morning, what we're going to do is, is, that's it. I mean, that's the text. There's nothing else to this. It's a list of names that most of us can't pronounce and would never name our children. 
And so we would discard this text as, as somewhat useless. But in, again, let me remind you of the fact that even though it's the fourth time, and it, in some ways it almost gets annoying for us, these are real people. These are real priests who lived in real time, who did real ministry on behalf of the people. In heaven, you and I are going to meet some of these priests. I can't wait to meet Bunny, whoever he is. I want to see what he actually looks like. Okay? These are real people who did real ministry. Just because it's so isolated from us in terms of thousands of years in distance does not mean that this is not important for us to know because what's interesting about this list is that Nehemiah doesn't speak just about the people that are presently in Jerusalem. He does something very unique. He includes in the list of priests that are living in the city of Jerusalem, he includes the priests that have moved back to the land of Judea about a hundred years earlier. So literally, like there's not this mass kind of exodus. There is a mass exodus from, from Jerusalem and from Israel when Babylon comes and takes over. But there's not a mass return. There's actually a trickle effect return. Like people just trickled over the course of hundred years or so. They just slowly started to come back and settle down. Except they didn't settle in the city. They wanted the suburbs. But Nehemiah includes all of the priests because he understands that it's what, what he's trying to say is, I'm not doing a new thing here. I'm trying to explain in a new way an old thing. So just like God broke Nehemiah's heart, it's, it's old news in a brand new way. Nehemiah is saying this is an old style of ministry that we're trying to give fresh eyes to. But it's still about the priesthood. He's not trying to invent new ways of ministry. He's not trying to circumvent and say, this happened all the time, by the way. People were like, well, maybe we should do it this way. Sounds so unlike our culture, hey? I don't like the way you do it. I'm going to do it this way. Does that not sound like our culture? That was the temptation then, too. But Nehemiah says, no way. When we return to God's Word, we realize how important the priesthood is. And I want you guys to see, and I'm willing to put a full chapter in the Bible, a couple of chapters, so that you can connect the old to the new to the future. And so what I want to do is actually very similar. I want to explain that our mission to bring the Gospel of Jesus Christ to Calgary is not a new thing. This is a super old thing that doesn't even begin with Jesus in the New Testament or with Jesus coming to earth. It's actually deeply connected to the story of Nehemiah. Because every concept of how we are a missionary in urban grace here in 2013 actually is derived from the model of the priest. I don't know if you knew that. And so what I want to show you is, what did an Old Testament, an Old Covenant, is another way to say Old Testament, what did an Old Covenant, Old Testament priest do? And then I want to show you how that, that wasn't destroyed, that idea of priesthood was not destroyed by Jesus. In fact, he fulfilled it in every way and became the best priest possible. And then I want to describe how Jesus, as the best high priest, doesn't just 
do priestly work, but then instills in us this command to be priests, a kingdom of priests, to our cities. Okay? I'm going to try and do that, and I'm going to try and do it in 30 minutes. I'm timing myself today. This thing never works. It goes way too fast. So I don't think I can do it, but I'm going to try. So let's first look, look at this. Jerusalem is, is full of these priests. And what are priests? Well, primarily, uh, priests are people that stand, they mediate between God and man. Okay, right away we've got some explaining to do, because some of you are brand new to Christianity, some of you are not, but you don't remember, so I'm going to do it for you too. Okay? There's a problem here, and the problem is, God's really holy, He's really other than human, and we're really human and really human. Does that make sense? There's, there's a problem. It's, it's, it's like we can't really have that great of a relationship just like that because God is so unsinful and we are so sinful that really, if He's wise, He never comes in contact with us. You ever heard the phrase, bad, good, bad company corrupts good character? Right? Take this to the nth degree and that's God versus us. Right? Some of you are like, well, I'm not that bad. Well, what if I could see inside every bad thought you ever had? You'd change your mind about, I'm not really that bad, wouldn't you? Inside, there are some things that you don't want anyone to know you've ever thought. Because you know they're bad. And that's what the Bible describes sin as. Not just the things that we do outside of our bodies, but the things we do inside of our bodies. The things we do in our head and in our heart. Did you know that the Bible says, you know, you ever, don't, don't murder someone. I'm guessing the majority of us are not murderers here this morning. That's just a guess. I'm not judging, just a guess. Okay? But I bet you that the way the Bible describes someone who's got a murderous heart, we'd all fit in that category. The Bible says, you have, Jesus actually said, you have heard it said, uh, do not murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with someone has committed sin in his own heart. Whoa. Suddenly that category expanded a lot in terms of who is sinful. So how, if we want a relationship, if we don't want a relationship with God, this isn't really a problem, is it? We just keep doing our own thing. And God says, you know what? I've got a special place for you to keep doing your own thing. I will create a place for you. We would know it as hell. I'll create a place for you. You don't have to talk to me ever again. You don't have to have anything to do with me. My presence is completely separate from you. And that's your choice. But if we do want a relationship with God, there's still a problem. How do we come in contact with a holy God? Well, this is where the idea of priest comes in. And a priest is someone who somehow is human and stands, is in contact with humans. So it's like it's not someone outside of themselves, it's someone like, like them, and yet someone who's able to come in contact with a holy God. And this is really difficult to comprehend and understand. This is why I prayed this morning. Jesus, I can't, I can't explain this to people. Like, you've got you've to show up in power. Like, this doesn't make sense to us. And so he created this idea of priests. And you will find, if you look in the book of Leviticus, uh, that's what the book is about. I mean, a priest is a Levite in the Old Testament. And a Levite, that's where the book Leviticus comes from. It's kind of right in the name. And this book is all about what priests need to do, how they need to clean themselves, what they need to wear, how they need to act. 
in order that they can be true mediators between God and man. And so this idea of, of a priesthood is deeply ingrained in all of Old Testament living. And so the reason why there's no explanation and no application in the text is because nobody in that culture would be confused about what a priest is. It's literally built right into their culture. And so priests do not exist for themselves. They exist for others. First thing we need to know about priests. Priests are priests by identity, not by gifting. What I mean by that is that you don't like line up and say, well, who's, who do you think in this room is good at being a priest? Okay, you're going to be the priests. It, they didn't get this opportunity because of how they acted. They got this opportunity because of what family line they were born into. Right? If you were born in the tribe of Levi, and that's what Leviticus says, and, and Exodus actually explains this, if you're born as a Levite, you're, you're in the priestly line and you can become a priest. But if you're not born in the priestly line, you can't become a priest no matter how much you try. You can't go to priest university and get your PAD in priesthood and then kind of work your way in and get your foot in the door. It doesn't work that way. In fact, God made it so clear that somebody tried to do this and he killed them. So he's pretty serious about it. You don't fool God on this. It's like, you're not a priest. This is really helpful for us later when we understand the gospel, because the gospel, we don't get grace because of what we do. We get grace because of what he does and decides in our life. Okay? So it actually, it's perfect for helping us understand what the gospel really is. So being a priest is a gift. Now, many of you are thinking right now, I would never want to be a priest. Anyone like that? I would never, ever want to be born in the priestly line. Anyone? No? No? Okay. Maybe this, this illustration won't work then. I'm kidding. We have, a, we have a bad view of priests, probably. I mean, most of the time that we hear about priests, it's in the news, it's negative, they've sinned horribly, abuse, all that kind of stuff. And so there's kind of a negative connotation for priests. But honestly, if you go back into Nehemiah's time, being a priest was a, a position of stature. Like, you have a job. Like, how many of you job search? Nobody here? Job search? Anyone? Okay, a few job search. If you're a priest, you don't job search. There's no jobs.com for priests. They, they're in. Like, like, you've got a job. You've got provision. People have to provide for you. And so it's a, it's a secure lifestyle. It's a good lifestyle. You get to do what everyone wishes they could do. You know those kind of jobs where you get to talk to all the important people and everyone's like, oh man, I wish I had your job. That's what it was kind of like for the priests. And they're given this identity by God, not by the gifts that they have. That's the first thing we need to know about priests. Secondly, what are priests supposed to do? They're supposed to be examples of God's holiness. And so, again, if you have to look in the book of Leviticus. This is why you need to read your Old Testament. But you have to see that all of these things that look like really complicated ways of living, where this is how much God cared about His holiness. This is how much He cared about explaining His holiness. And this is not just morally right or wrong. That, that needs to be really clear. So it's not like priests didn't sin and those who did couldn't be priests. That's not essentially what a priest was supposed to do as an example of holiness. There are situations in the Bible where we do see that the priests 
are not morally right. They're crooked people. Yes, this happens. It still happens. But what also happens is they give examples of God's holiness in that they are other than everyone else. No one else has this style of dress. No one else is commanded to wash themselves in this way. No one else has this kind of restriction when it comes to having children, going to war. Certain people have to wear, like Aaron, for instance, the high priest has to wear special garments with special little stones on it in a special way in special colors. He has to wear special things on his hair. And so literally the idea is a priest gives an example of God's otherness. So when you see that person walking down the street, you're like, that is a priest. He's got a turban. He's a priest. He's wearing white. No one else wears white. Black is the new white. We don't wear white. They do. They're a priest. And so priests are examples of God's holiness. So they're, this is the way they proclaim. This is the way they mediate. So for, on God's behalf, they speak to the people about how holy God is. And it's built right into their way of life. Like you don't live, every time there's a celebration, priests do certain things. Every, time there, every year there's certain activities within the temple that explain all of this about God's holiness. And you can't be Jewish, you can't be Israelite without getting this idea that God is different than you. God's not just one of you. This is what's so hard to understand when we get to Jesus where He does become one of us. Thirdly, priests bring the tangible presence of God to the people. And there's lots of things that priests do to, to explain this. That, that the temple is like, like I said, it's, it's the... Uh, it's the concentration of God's presence and only the priest can go inside the temple. Once the temple was built, once the tabernacle was built, there were like curtains. So, so the, you stood outside. So to, get, to, to bring this into modern day, it would be as if like I was your priest and you all stood outside drinking coffee while I came inside and performed worship for you. Yeah, many of you are like, that does not sound like a lot of fun. I know, it was faulted in a way that it couldn't bring some of the things that Jesus brings. And Jesus was setting himself up for this. But until then, the priest began to bring the tangible presence of God. And the real tangible presence of God was very terrifying. Again, I I used this illustration before. Who's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, good show. Spoiler alert, not really, because it's like 20 years old, 25 years old. Okay, so like... If it's a spoiler alert, you need to get out more. But in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's this image of the ark being opened and just this tangible presence of something that's so holy that it just melts people and burns them away. Okay, so how do you convey that? It's difficult. That's why God does it and not us. But He said, what I want you to do is I want you to, to sacrifice certain animals. I want you to burn certain things. I want you to cook certain things. I want you, and a lot of it was burning. And with burning, you get smell. And with smell, you get like tangible presence. You know what I mean by that? Who's walked around lately? You ever walked by someone who has way too much perfume on? Anyone? What's that like? You're literally walking along and you're like, whoa, somebody has perfume on. Like, there's something tangible about that, right? There's something that you notice about that. 
And that's why I think God had priests burn things, burn incense, burn animals. Because there was something about that smell that was like, oh, that's the smell of worship. That's the smell of God doing something for us. That's the smell of God's holiness. We'll get into the smell thing later on. Fourthly, priests, I think, primarily atone for the sins of the people. Perhaps that's the primary function that you think of. Only a priest can sacrifice and, and bring and, and mediate. And so in the Old Testament, there's this guy. His name is King Saul. And what he does, he's the first king of Israel. It wasn't God's choice. It was the people's choice. And there was a major problem with Saul. He thought he was so good looking. He thought he was so strong that he could bypass this idea of, of priest. And so when he wanted something done, when usually when you wanted something done, when you wanted God to speak to you on behalf, you went to the temple to worship him. And, and you said to the priest, I would like to offer this sacrifice because I, I love God and I want him to, you know, I want him to speak to me. So you kind of you work this out with God and then you come back and you tell me what you what, what you've heard. And Saul's like, hey, I'm the king. I can kind of do whatever I want. And he offers these sacrifices. And you know what God does? He says, that's the point. I remove my spirit from you and my blessing on you. And Saul is never the same again. And he ends terribly. Because he tried to go around this idea of atoning for his own sin in his own way. And it didn't work and God didn't let him get away with it. And there's other places in which people try this and they literally die for trying it. And so priests are there to atone for the sins of the people. And they did not take this lightly. They needed clean clothes. They needed perfect lambs. They needed uh, special sacrifices. It costs money to worship God. It took time out of your schedule. There's one special place in all of Israelite life where, where the high priest, who is like the CEO of all priests, only one person in all of Israel could actually go into the deepest part of the temple, into the most concentrated part of God's presence, and offer what is called... The, the ultimate sacrifice, the Day of Atonement sacrifices. And it's kind of a wild, you know, it's hard for us to grasp. But it, like, like literally there's chapters in Leviticus about this. Chapter 16, if you're in particular, for those note takers. And what happens is there's this very complicated uh, deal where, where the high priest goes in and, and he needs like, I think it's four animals. I, can't, I could never get my head around this, but I think it's about four animals. And so he needs, he needs a, the blood of a bull in order just to get into the Holy of Holies. And he, he slits the bull's throat and, and spills the blood, showing that, that, that God, that he's serious. Somebody has to pay for this. Somebody has to pay for this. This opportunity to spend time with God. And he literally takes the blood and he, he sprinkles it. In many ways to symbol this cleansing of the people. And then he takes another goat when he goes inside and he slits his throat as well. And then finally he, he places his hand on this other goat. Poor goat, say. Can you imagine being a goat in those days? You're like, oh crap. I'm headed for sacrifice. What are you, what are you doing? I live in the hills. Anyways, I don't know. That one's for free. But he places his hands on the goat and confesses the sins of Israel. And then once he's done confessing the sins of Israel, he sends it out in the desert to die away from the people. That's where we get this word scapegoat. 
from. Did you know that? That's what a scapegoat is. A scapegoat was the one who took the sin and then took off. He escaped out of the camp into the wilderness. So see, even when we talk in our modern day culture, we still got this concept of scapegoat still built into our culture. That came from the Day of Atonement. This sounds really complex, doesn't it? This is why I would describe the gospel as good news. Because here's what happens. Let me, let me get into the good stuff, okay? To me, that's not necessarily the bad stuff. It's just not the good, good stuff. Because what happens is, when Jesus comes into this world, he is God become man. So this is the gospel. If you're not familiar with what the gospel is, it's God becoming man. He's saying, I will become the ultimate sacrifice for my people. And one of his priorities was to become the great high priest who made all the other high priests look like silly compared to him. That's why the whole book of Hebrews unpacks this idea of of Jesus being so much better than Moses and so much better than any high priest that could ever come. Because this is what Jesus does. Jesus fulfills everything that the Old Testament idea of priesthood was trying to do. So in all that, all of these ideas of Old Testament priesthood were like snapshots. They were like movie trailers for the future of the great movie coming out called Jesus and His Gospel. And so what happens is when Jesus arrives, it's like the movie has arrived. The real deal has arrived. And Jesus is the great high priest. Here's how He's the great high priest. He is a high priest not just by what He does, but by who He is. This is God. He didn't send someone who was just clean. He came Himself. I mean, this is awesome. This is God becoming man. Why? I have no idea. I'd never do that if I was God. Glad I'm not. God doesn't just send somebody. He comes Himself and says, I will be your priest. And you won't want to go back. This is, this is the book of Galatians. You won't really want to go back to that old way if you really get this. It won't be that attractive to you because it's literally like, <laughs> Jesus is better. For those of you who have an old Windows computer, okay, and you have a new Windows computer, there's very, well, okay, that doesn't work for Windows, Mac. Okay? If you have an old Mac computer and something new in Mac comes out, I've rarely heard anyone say, oh, I wish I had the old Mac. Everyone's like, no way. I want the new. It's not even a comparison. Why? Because the new one's better. That's why. Jesus is better. Sometimes we as Christians still kind of long for this old way where it's just like, I want, I want everyone to tell me what to do. Uh, I want people to tell me how to worship. I want to know how it's clear cut. Just Jesus, tell me what's right and what's wrong and I'll just do that. I wish it was the old way. I've heard Christians say that. And it's almost frustrating because I go, can you not just read your Bible and see that Jesus is just so much better? Here's how Jesus is better. He is our high priest by who he is. Not just by what He does. 
Secondly, He is our high priest because He is the perfect example of God's holiness. In the Old Testament priest way, there were just like images of, of God's holiness. Just reflections of God's holiness. And did you know that the priest, although he atoned for the sins of the people, although he was an example of holiness, that priest also had to atone for his own sins in order to serve. That priest also had to have his own holiness. He had to figure that out. He had his own relationship with God. He didn't come into this clean. He had to somehow become clean. Jesus didn't. This is, this is remarkable. But Jesus is perfectly sinless. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, He, that is God, made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. So He didn't have sin in Him, but He takes on all sin. So why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That doesn't sound like an equal equation to me. Does that sound equal to you? I'll take everything bad you've ever done. I'll take it on myself. All the penalty, all the wrath of God. How about I give you everything that I've earned, which is everything. I'm perfectly holy. And all of creation, redemption, new life, a mission. That doesn't sound like an equal transaction, does it? That's why it's not called a transaction. It's called grace. It's because if you have a transaction, it's like, well, this is you know, equal value for this. No, what I offer to Jesus is not equal value to what He offers me. He freely gives to me what I should not have, which is new life, new birth, clean heart, access to God, resurrected life, a real mission, while He takes my sin. It's an exchange, but it is not a transaction, friends. This is grace. This is mercy. And this is Jesus as our high priest. Thirdly, Jesus brings the tangible presence of God to us through His Holy Spirit. So it used to be that the, only the priest could go in, and if you were a priestly line, you could go in. And then when Jesus came, Hebrews said He actually ripped this curtain in half. He destroyed this curtain that used to separate those who were holy and those who were not holy. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. So, it's not a curtain anymore. It's not a building anymore. It's Jesus Christ who stood between the two to hold off the sin of the people and the wrath of God. He says, you're going to go through Me. He's the living way. He's the living curtain. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Does that not sound like super priestly language to you? That's just what we heard from Leviticus. Sprinkling, washing, and now it's Jesus, our high priest. You don't need that anymore. Most of you are still kind of stunned by this, I can tell. This is a remarkable God. This is not religion that we're used to. 
This is a real person who really came, who really provided access for us. And it's tangible. We can feel it. So I'll ask some of you, like, why do you believe in Jesus? It's like, I don't know. It doesn't really make sense, but I just do. I don't know. You know what that is? That's the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, making sense to you despite everything that could go wrong. Some of you like things and love things for no apparent reason. You can't really explain it, right? Like you like a team that never wins. Why do you do that? Now, who knows? doesn't make sense. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit does for a believer to believe that Jesus is the great high priest. And then lastly, Jesus ultimately atones for our sins once and for all. The Old Testament way, the Old Covenant way was for Aaron to kill one goat, to place his hands on this scapegoat, confess those sins, and then send that goat into the desert. And this is Jesus' new way. He said, confess your sins to me through faith and I will put your hands on me and I will hang on the cross and go away from God for you. I'll be your scapegoat. If you will simply do what? Trust? No works? Can't earn this? No. If you believe that Jesus is your great high priest, He says, I will, through your faith, take your sins away from you forever. You should be scratching your head right now. Unless you believe it. And then you should really be saying, Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you. This is amazing stuff. This is why the Gospel is such good news. I know your heart's still... Not all of your hearts are there. You still struggle with this. And I'm praying that this makes sense for you. This is the explicit gospel. And so as Matt Chandler says, one goat absorbs the wrath of God and is killed. His throat is slit. And he bleeds out. He dies a death. What does that symbolize? That should have been me. One goat takes the sin that I've committed in the last year and sends it away from the camp. What should that be? That should have been my sin. I should be the one that's sent out away from God, but I'm not. And so see how this Old Testament priesthood really gives us a clear picture of what the Gospel really is. And how we need to know this stuff. We need to respect all these priests who served in Nehemiah. Because why did they do that? So that today you can hear the Gospel. That's why they did it. See how I'm trying to connect the past with your present, with your future? Now here's the cool thing is Jesus doesn't just save us. He doesn't just absorb the wrath of God for us. He doesn't just carry away our sin from us. That's the explicit gospel. What he does is in the gospel, he actually turns you from someone who used to be against God, working against God. He turns you into someone who's working for God. You ever known a friend who switches teams halfway through their life? They're like, I used to cheer for the Oilers, now I cheer for the Flames. That's not a weird thing for you? It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. This is what God does with everyone who calls themselves a Christian. He turns them into someone who's, who chants, I hate you, I don't want you in my life, I don't want your influence, I don't want your, your redemptive power in my life, I don't want to hear this good news into someone who says, I love you, I want to tell people about you, I'm changed by you. Through Jesus. And God actually said, I'm not just in this to save you, 
I'm in this to turn you, yes, you, I'm pointing at you now, into a kingdom of missionary priests. So we don't just receive the priesthood of Jesus as a free gift. He says, I transform your life into someone who now actually is perfectly capable of reflecting me and who I am to the world. So instead of Jesus just being your priest, you become a priest to people on Jesus' behalf for Jesus' glory. This is a miracle. This is why churches, when they're really in love with Jesus, they get attractive to people who don't know about Jesus because this is what they see. There's something about that that reminds me of God. There's something right about that group of people, all these stupid people loving each other. It's weird. These people should not be together. I mean, that's what we say kind of in our city group. I mean, I love all the people in my city group, but we're not the same people. Like, we don't like the same things at all. We don't like the same music. We don't like the same food. We don't like the same style of housing. We don't like the same hobbies. But we love Jesus, and that unites us together. And I think we actually, because of that, we become attractive to people that don't know Jesus because there's something weird about this whole thing that sounds a lot like how God should really be. And so 1 Peter actually says this. You, as a Christian, you cannot earn your priesthood. That is something that Jesus gives to you. That's your identity. You don't have a choice in this. You are a priest. The question is, do you know that? Do you know that the way you proclaim Jesus through your life? Do you, do you know that? Are you aware that when you walk around, it's as if God is looking and said, that's one of my priests. They're walking around. Are you aware of this as you walk around? And this is why the Bible doesn't describe this bunch of do's and don'ts. It talks mostly about identity. It's like, when you understand that you're that kind of priest, does that not make you like straighten up and go, wow, this is cool. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not that good at this, but oh well, it's cool. That's what Peter did. He reminded the people that he was preaching to. He reminded his churches. He said, don't you know? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, that's Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, the temple. You get to be this temple now. You get to be the concentrated effort of God for his presence. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race. You're like those Levites when you become a Christian. Your identity is established. You have a job. You don't have a choice whether you have a job. You are a royal priesthood. That's what it says in the text. You're a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you, will, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once you weren't priests, 
Nehemiah's would, those people who are priests would love to get a glimpse of what we're doing today. If they were here today, they would say, please don't, don't take this for granted. You have no idea the gift you are being given and being made into a royal priesthood. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does a missionary priest do? What does he look like? What does she look like? A missionary priest displays God's holiness. That's why the way you act is so important. So sometimes because we hear grace, because we hear... Jesus forgave our sin. We think what we do doesn't matter. That's not true. What you do does matter. The way you live does matter. And not all of these ways are are moral rights and wrongs. Some of them are things that are there just to separate you from the rest of the world. Like the Sabbath. Like, anyone work downtown in corporate Calgary? What if you walked in there and said, yes, you guys know about the Sabbath, right? They'd have no idea. doesn't make sense. This is, this is a confusing concept. One of the ways in which we proclaim God's holiness is we just obey what God says on things. We do things the way God says. And many of those times, it's very different from the way the world does it. What does the world say about money? Well, it says, earn as much as you can. Get as much as you can. It's your money. What does God say? It's not your money. You're a steward of this money. So when you give, the question is, how much should you keep for yourself? The world says, whatever you makes you feel good, do it. What God says is, whatever glorifies me, do it. The world says, have as much sex as you can. God says, that's not the clearest way to depict who I am. The clearest way to depict who I am is to have a relationship with one woman and one wife. Or one man, one wife, sorry. One man, one wife. Let's get that straight. One man, one wife, one man. Okay, you got that? Internet boys, you got to help me on that one. Why? Some people say it's all it's wrong. No, because it doesn't clearly depict the relationship that Jesus has with his church. Look at Ephesians 5. It says this is the image that God wants to portray. And when we mix this up, it doesn't portray the gospel right. And that's why Paul in Galatians tells Peter, the way you're acting is not in accordance with the gospel. And that's why at Urban Grace, that's how we function as leadership. That's how we function in families. That's why we have this definition of marriage, because we believe God said this is the clearest, most explicit way of proclaiming the gospel. And so we simply say, "Okay, God, if that's what you think, then we'll do it. That's what someone who is a priest of God does. Not simply what is convenient for me, what works for me. And so a missionary priest displays God's holiness, yes, through their morality, but yes, also in the activities of life, like you set certain times aside, like you make community a priority. Why do we make a community a priority? Why do we have big and small here at Urban Grace? 
because God said big and small. We believe that. Why do we do marriage the way we do? Because God, we believe that God, that's what God says. Why do we do money the way we do? Because we believe that's God, how God wants us to handle our money. We believe these are all tools. We believe these are all like little miniature mirrors by which God reveals His holiness to us and then we reflect it through our lives because we are priests now. We don't go into a church building anymore and just like do our little worship and then walk out and go, oh, that was great. No, no, everywhere we go, we are a missionary priest. There's no buildings anymore in New Covenant priesthood. There's no geographical places that are more holy than others. There are simply places where there are priests and places where there are not. Secondly, a missionary priest reflects God's presence with their love. That's one thing that the Old Testament, Old Covenant priesthood had a hard time doing. It had a very hard time proclaiming God's love. Generally, people got a sense of God's wrath. You notice that? You notice how the church sometimes has a better, does a better job of proclaiming God's wrath? and God's hatred of sin, and God's love towards... Have you noticed that? Some of you are here because your last church did a better job and they outweighed this thing and they wanted more people to be concerned about God's wrath. And that's why Jesus, the high priest, comes as an act of love and and turns us into priests that become not objects that, that go around and establish God's wrath. He can do that. We're conduits of love. That's why even when we gather, like when I hear you milling around, what I'm hoping is that when anyone that's never been to a church before comes, they go, these people obviously love each other. And they're actually willing to be really inclusive of me. That's why I hope in the city groups, these become very inclusive places where you can go to feel the tangible presence of God's love. Not the presence of God's tangible hatred of sin that's already been done, dealt with on the cross. That's why it's not a part, it's supposed to be a part of our communities. There's nothing, there's nothing that displays God's love like sacrifice, is there? Go through the list of your favorite movies, and if they involve some sort of hero, it's always a sacrifice that you adore. It's always a sacrifice of love. I, I, as I was preparing, I was remembering my own sacrifice. Of love, and it happened in a dream. I was a high school student who was madly in love with a woman who did not know I existed. Well, she knew I existed and she avoided me. Okay. And I had this dream once where, in an act of pure sacrificial love, for some reason she was standing in front of a city bus, which is weird. I'm from a small town and there's no such thing as a city bus, but in my dream, in my town, there was this city bus, and she was totally oblivious to it, and I was, you know, screaming, no, you know, move out of the way. In an act of total heroic love, I leapt out, and I pushed her out of the way, and the bus drove over my legs, and I spent the rest of my life in a wheelchair with broken legs as an act of sacrificial love, and I just thought I was so awesome in my dream, literally. You're the first people to hear this, so keep it to yourselves. But every time there's this 
This sacrifice, there, there's, there's this act of love. It's sacrifice. When we love our children, what do we do for them? We sacrifice for them. When we love our spouses, what do we do for them? We sacrifice for them. Today is Mother's Day. We're trying to love our moms. What are we going to do? We're going to sacrifice something for them. We're going to sacrifice our own free time. We're going to sacrifice our money. We're going to sacrifice our longing as guys to go lay on the couch and sleep for the afternoon. We're going to sacrifice that. Because when you love someone, that's what you do. You sacrifice for them. And this is God saying, if all I'm asking you to do is reflect me, Hear me out. You have to hear the gospel if you're going to be a missionary priest. Because if you can hear how much he sacrificed for us. Him saying, no, all I want you to do is reflect the sacrificial love to others. Not in the way I did, but in miniature ways. In many priestly ways. Like maybe open a door for someone every now and again. Like maybe greet someone in the hallway or in the theater that you don't know. Or maybe in your neighborhood, take care of someone. Or maybe join a community group where you have to actually serve people. That's all he, what he asks of us is not to be compared with what he has done for us. And that's why our motivation for sacrificial love can never be to earn God's favor, just only simply as an act of worship. And what's, what's the last way that a missionary priest... Acts. A missionary priest spreads God's fragrance. Remember, I was talking about, um, you know, walking down the street and smelling kind of perfume. That's what comes to my mind. There's a lot of bad smells. I think scientifically, I, I'm not. I didn't take biology, obviously, as a college student. But uh, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but I hope so. But smell has a funny way of triggering some of our deepest memories, doesn't it? You notice that? You notice the smell of a certain type of food can take you back 20 years like that? It's strange. Perfume does this for me. Okay? Not in a good way either. And when the Bible actually says that, that we become God's fragrance as his priest, and that's to kind of give us this image of, like in the Old Testament, they used to burn things, and so you would smell worship. Like when an animal carcass was burning, it had a certain smell. And when you smelled that, your mind was triggered. Oh, I'm guilty and declared clean. Had this unique way of, it's like a song that comes on the radio that you're just like, yeah, it's been 20 years and I can remember it perfectly. And it triggers some old memories or some bad memories. I have this one memory of this one certain perfume and why I was dating this girl. It's not my wife, Leslie, at this point. And she wore a certain kind of perfume and, oh, it was heaven. I think it was Escape for Women. So please, please, I'm, I'm sorry. Am I dating myself there? Okay, I don't think, does it exist anymore? I don't think it exists. I just got the shake of the head. No. So it's Escape for Women and, oh, I could tell when she was in the room. I could tell when she was in the room. I could tell when she walked by. I could tell when some woman decided to wear it that wasn't her. I mean, I'd be going to college. I'd be like, where, where is she? I, I smell her. She wore probably more than she should have at times. So it was a potent smell. What's amazing is how that smell that seemed to be so beautiful when we broke up, what did it turn into? 
kind of death. I mean, that's maybe a little extreme. But honestly, when I smelled that smell, all I could think about is, is the brokenness of that part of my life. And Jesus says, all I want you to do is be a missionary priest. And sometimes this is how it will appear. You will, you will bring a fragrance to some people and it will smell like life to them. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says this. It says, ministers of a new covenant. Is it chapter 3 here? Maybe it's chapter 4. Chapter 2, actually. Sorry. It said, if you're a missionary priest at times, you will smell really good to people. They'll see the gospel in you and it'll activate some things in their life and it'll make them want to long for the gospel. And for some, it'll be the smell of death. And this is the disappointing part of being a missionary priest. Is seeing how this great gospel news for some turns into death, but, but the great part is for some it turns into life and it's great joy. Same news, same smell, but for some it smells like death and others it smells like life. This is what Paul says. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us priests spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. So literally, because of what Jesus has done in our life, God goes, oh, that's the smell of my people. That's the smell of the gospel at work. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. God says, you leave what it smells like up to me. You leave the end result of your priesthood up to me. You just be a priest. You just bring the fragrance of God. What does that fragrance look like? It looks very different for all kinds of people. But it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. It looks like speaking the words about Jesus. It looks like acting the way Jesus acted. We do this in community. We do this outside of community. We do it everywhere we go. But see, Jesus doesn't say, you're a bunch of individual priests. He says, no, 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 no. I'm building you into a kingdom of priests. I'm building you into a community of priests. And that's why our small group, our city group, is such a great place for this manifestation of the presence of God to be. That's why we don't merely just want you to be priests on your own. We want you to get into community so that you can join others. Because I tell you, when there's a group of 10 or 12 that smell like Jesus, it's really powerful. It's better than one person smelling like Jesus. Always. This is Jesus' design for us. So as we come to the table now, as we take the time to simply... Thank Jesus. Let us remember this. Let us remember this. This table here represents your high priest. That's what this is. This is about Jesus Christ paying the ultimate sacrifice. This is about Jesus Christ coming as a clean priest, becoming dirty on your behalf for your sake. And so simply, I hope today that we can worship Jesus. That's all this is about. 
If, if you're not a Christian this morning, we ask that you would not partake. Not because we don't believe that, that, that you shouldn't partake, or because we don't want you to partake, but because this will no, has no magical power to do anything for you. This is a symbol of our high priest. And by coming forward, what you're saying, partaking of it, what you're saying is, I believe that Jesus is my high priest. Now, if you don't yet believe that, here's what I would say. Why not? Why don't you believe as Jesus is your high priest? Why don't you want to turn your life over to him? Why, don't you, why can't you see that Jesus is better? He is better. Trust in him today. Then partake as a symbol of your commitment to Jesus as your high priest. Tom, go for me. Jesus is our high priest. What a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus.